Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, a look at a variety of psalms. The psalms are the prayers of God's people, encouraging and teaching us how to pray in our day. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will, be, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. June 28, 1919 is when the Allies had Germany sign the Treaty of Versailles. In short, this treaty was to bring about world peace. And as a result of this, the League of Nations, if you've heard of the League of Nations, it was then called the League of Nations, was formed. And again, they had one end, and that was to bring about world peace. A year later, though, as you may know, the Nazi party was birthed, and the rise of the Third Reich was happening. About 20 years later, World War II happened, and World War I paled in comparison in terms of the chaos that it caused. Now, the League of Nations, they were dismantled. They were thrown to the side, even though they did morph into the United Nations. And the United Nations' goal was to bring about world peace. But if you're a historian and you know your history, you would understand that that didn't happen. After World War II, it set off like the domino effect. It set off a series of wars that have continued even until this day. Now, what's the point that I'm making here? The point is this. There is no government. There are no powers. There's no military in this earth that can stop war. There's nothing that can bring about global peace. We can strive and we can go after it, and that's good, but nothing will be able to accomplish that end well, there is one person, but we'll get to that here at the end. But nothing is able to stop war. And wars do bring a sense of instability and anxiety, don't they? And, Lord, and, and praise the Lord, I even heard uh, Greg talk about it today, that there's persecution elsewhere. But we in America, we don't have to face the threat of war. We, we're not in that. But if you think about it, there are warlike struggles and trials and tribulations that we go through that cause anxiety as well. And I'd love uh, for you to, you know, follow me and, and, and follow me as the archetype of someone who can help you through chaos and help you through that, but my wife would tell you and many others would say that will get you nowhere if you follow me, because I have not figured it out. And if I'm, if I'm honest, I mean, when, when chaos happens in my life, when warlike things come about me, when it feels like the world's pressing in on me, uh, I tend to panic. I tend to panic. And if you're honest, you panic as well. There are some circumstances and situations in your life that have happened that you would say, man, I feel like, I feel like I'm, a, I'm, I'm a person with a phobia and I'm riding a phobia of heights and I'm riding a roller coaster for the first time. I'm panicking. I'm fearful. There are some circumstances, whether it's uncertainty of your retirement, maybe it's COVID, sickness, death, an angry boss, losing a spouse, a bad day at work, social unrest, economic uncertainty. There are things in this life that cause us sleepless 
nights. Now, this is not just a Bay Ridge thing. You know, I'm not just talking directly to Bay Ridge because this is a nationwide thing. For example, um, the American Psychological Association surveys anxiety rates in America since 2007. And here's a couple of their findings in 2021. 78% of American adults say the coronavirus pandemic is a significant source of stress in their lives. 78%. The majority of adults still say that healthcare, 66%, mass shooting, 62%. Rise in suicide rates, 51%. Immigration, 47%. Widespread sexual harassment, 47%. Cause stress in their lives. Nearly 65% say that the current amount of uncertainty in our nation causes them stress. And finally, 77% say the failure of our nation is a significant source of stress, up significantly from 2019, where 66% of adults said the same thing. And then in 71% say that this is the lowest point in our nation's history that they can remember. Hmm. So, so again, it, with those numbers, it, a couple of you've got to understand that we go through some circumstances and situations that bring about a little bit of uncertainty and stress and chaos. So I think it's fair to say that we have sleepless nights from time to time. Now, the way we handle it is, well... You know, sometimes we might take a shot of whiskey and put our favorite TV show on and pass out. Maybe that's the only way we can do it. Again, if you follow me, that's, that's going to be your destiny. But, but, but <laughs> we, we, we don't handle it well. We don't handle stress. That situation that's happened in your life, we don't handle it well. And the way we handle it, it actually leads to more passivity, lethargy. It leads to a, a, a meaninglessness where we're seeking to find purpose in our lives so we can get through this thing we call life. And so the purpose of this passage and what we're going to work on in this message is I want us to handle chaos well. I want us to handle it well. I want us to handle it the way that the psalmist handles it. Because if we do that, we're going to actually, uh, stress won't trigger, it won't trigger anxiety. It will trigger delight in Jesus. And that's an amazing concept. If I can do that today, if, I can, if stress comes into your life and it actually triggers you to go after Jesus, then that's a big win today. So we're going to look at three themes that kind of weave their way through the fabric of the text, and we are going to talk about it here at the end. Here's the very first thing. It says that, the passage will say that God is our refuge and our fortress, which you see here, that means he is our defender. He is our defender. Look back at verse one. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. First, notice that you got to be in trouble if God's going to be your defense. That, that God's defense is most recognized in danger. I, 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 I understand that he's helping me and can protect me when I have a problem. That's super important to know because, again, that might trigger something different. If all of a sudden I'm going, to, if life is perfect and, and it's all cupcakes and roses and, and it's a beautiful thing, the sunshine shining nice, a lot of times I forget about God. I forget that he's my protection. I forget that he's my defense. But when things really start to, to, to be challenging, when, when it does feel like the waters are crashing in, when it does feel like uh, life is really coming on me hard, it, that's when all of a sudden I can begin to understand that he's my defense. That's when I need a message. That's when I need to worship. And so I understand that his defense is most recognized when I have trouble. And then he goes on in verse 7. It says, 
He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then for emphasis, because he wants to stress this point in verse 11, he says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, he just repeats that again because he wants us to know that God is our defender. He is our defense. And if God is our defense, you should think about this. What, What should our response be then? If God is our defense, how should we respond? Well, the psalmist is gonna help it out if it's not obvious to us. He says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, he says, we will not fear. Because if I know that God is my defense, if I know that he has an army surrounding me, I have nothing to fear in my life. Though war rise against me, though though things are pressing in on me, if I know that he's there protecting me, it's one thing for the military to protect me, it's one thing for me to whip up enough strength to protect myself, but if God is my defense, if God is the one that's protecting me with all the power in the world, the sovereign God, then I have nothing to fear. Notice David in Psalm chapter uh, 27 says something very similar. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. I will be confident. Why? Because he's my protection. When wars and armies, they start to come against me. When things come at me that cause me stress, I need to understand it should trigger that I have a God that's more powerful than the things that's coming against me. I have a God who is sovereign, a God that's the hedge of protection around me, and that should comfort us to know that I can place my faith and my trust in him. If you've ever gone through that hard time, if you've ever gone through something where it feels like, man, I can't, I can't pay the bills. I, I can't control the child. I can't control even myself. It's just all crashing down. It should remind us that we have a Holy Spirit, that we have a God who is our defender. And that is a beautiful, beautiful reality. But let's move here to the second point because God's not only our defender, but he's also our deliverer. Uh, the picture that I had as I was thinking through this sermon is, you ever see those, those war movies where, um, I, I won't give any examples because it's not probably not uh, Bay Ridge appropriate rating, but <laughs> so if you ever see those war movies where the, the, the soldiers are fighting, they're surrounded and all the enemies are crashing in on them. There's a lot of movies out like that and they're fighting and fighting and fighting and it's like, yeah, man, they got defense. They got people protecting them, but that's exhausting. <laughs> that's exhausting. Sit up three days in a row. I'm fighting and I'm fighting and I'm fighting. But what happens at the end of the movie if it ends well? All of a sudden, the missiles come in, the airstrikes come in, it takes out the enemies, and then it's, it's like every movie, a helicopter comes flying in, and then you're just like, you're, you're watching it, you're like, oh, thank God. They get home. It gives you peace because they are delivered. So it's great to have defense, but I need some offense to get me out of this war zone. I need to get out of here, and that's who, what God does as well. He's our defender, but he's also our deliverer out of the chaos. Look back, verse six, it says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He, talking about God, utters his voice. The earth melts. Wow. The NLT version, it says, the the nations are in chaos. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The idea of God's voice thundering, the idea of God speaking, it actually helps us, it denotes that, that his command is going out. 
to a particular end. In the very beginning in Genesis where it said that God spoke the world into existence. As God speaks, he's not like us. When we speak, things don't always uh, uh, go the way we want it to. But when God speaks, he's sovereign and powerful. It will happen what he tells, what he says to happen. So what we see here is we see the wicked being destroyed by God's voice. That when, and it's really cool here, that if you really look at this, as, as the nations totter and the, the earth gives way, the kingdoms are shaking, it's, it, it's really showing, it's, it's poetic, because it's saying that the, the earth is speaking, the kingdoms are speaking. It's saying that, if, 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 do we have this in our world? Do we have where governments or certain things, where certain kingdoms, certain nations will speak and intimidate? When, when, when the wicked intimidates, God says, that's just inciting me for your destruction. And the destruction of the wicked is the deliverance of the righteous. The destruction of the wicked is the deliverance of the righteous. And then the passage, it goes on, it says, the earth melts. What's going on there? That's, that's the Old Testament analogy of when, when they would put metal in the fire and the dross on the metal would begin to be, uh, 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 it, would, it would fall off the metal so that the metal would come out perfected. And all the dirt and the dross and the mud, it would leave. That's what's happening. It's talking about, uh, uh, David and I were just talking about this word eschatology, last times. It's, the, it's what's gonna happen at the end of the earth. It's talking about when God's wrath comes down to judge his earth, the wicked will fall off and die, and the righteous will stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. It's a very, very, very powerful words that he's saying here in this text. But, it, but if it's not clear enough that God's our deliverer, if God's not destroying the, the, the kingdoms of the earth here, look back in verse 8 and 9. It says, it says, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. I don't know how you, that, that, that's like straight destruction, desolation. He, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The idea is that the destruction of the wicked, it, 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 it brings peace for those who are righteous. Back in the ancient Near East, when, when the time of this writing, you, you, you have to kind of put yourself in, in the shoe of the, of the psalmist. And the people of Israel, they had had war after war after war after war. They had oppressor after oppressor after oppressor. They were oppressed and had war with Egypt. Then they were oppressed and taken into captivity by Assyria. And then they were oppressed and taken into captivity by Babylon. It's like throughout their entire history, they had nothing but war and oppression. And they're exhausted and there, there, there was this, this hope, if you're reading Old Testament to New Testament, there was this hope that there would be this Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ would come and he would end all wars. He would end all oppression. He would stop all of this struggle that they had to go through. And that's what's happening here in this passage is that they're, they're crying out for the Messiah to come and bring desolation to the earth. And you guys know, as, as New Testament believers, you know that that Messiah in the Old Testament that was promised then is Jesus Christ now. That he would come and he would bring an end to all war. But you might be saying, okay, well, that, that's, that's great. I'm following your logic, but what about World War II? Like, didn't you just talk about wars? Like, there's wars continuing over and over and over and over again. But here's the key, and Jesus' disciples actually got this. They got mixed up here too. Here's the thing. When Jesus came, the Messiah... He said, I'm gonna put an end to all spiritual war first. It's a holy war that I'm gonna fight. This is a war that I'm not gonna win in person. This is a war I'm gonna win on a cross. 
This is a war that, here's the, here, 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 is, here it is. If you hear nothing else, hear this. The greatest threat you have is not some nation coming in and taking out America. The greatest threat you have, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is God. It's God. It's the greatest threat. Why? Because we're all sinners. We were born in sin. You, you don't have to tell a, a, a young mother that. <laughs> she looks at her children. <laughs> you, you know you're born in sin. We all mess up. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the reality that if we stay in that sin, there is a penalty for that sin. We can't get it twisted. There is a penalty for that sin. And like I said, some other nation, some other government is not the threat that's going to take us out because of our sin. It's the wrath of God. We just talked about the metal and the dross falling off of it. It is God's wrath that comes for those who sin. We love to talk about the love of God, but the love of God on the other hand, uh, the other uh, side of the coin is the wrath of God. If I love life, then I've got to protect life, and I must hate those who take life. You see, this is something we don't talk a lot about. The pending threat that we have if we have not placed our faith in Jesus Christ is the wrath of the Father. But because Jesus came to this earth, he has delivered us, okay, he's our defender, but he's delivered us from himself. He's delivered us from the Father's wrath. Because we place our faith in him, it says that when he went to the cross, all the wrath that was owed to us, that was due us, all of that wrath was placed on Jesus. It was placed on the son, and he took it on. We, 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 we get really sad, especially if you watch The Passion of Christ. We get really sad when we see him up there and the physical pain that he's gone through, and he's scarred up, and he's bleeding, and it, it, it really breaks our heart, and it should break our heart. But what we don't understand, and this is pretty deep here, but what we don't understand is that was nothing compared to what he really went through. He went through the wrath of God. The wrath of God was not him getting beat. The wrath of God was the father who was in perfect relationship with him, turning away from the son who he, had, who he was in relationship for eternity with. He turned away from him. If, if my father turned away from me and rejected me, I've been in relationship with my dad for uh, 29 years now, that would hurt. That would crush me. That would be emotionally damaging. But the father who's in perfect relationship with Jesus for eternity says, I reject you. I turn away from you because I'm going to accept those who accept you. If we place our faith in that, if we place our faith in Jesus, if we believe that reality, the greatest threat we could ever face is not going to take us out. It is the most amazing Reality is the most beautiful thing. Sounds so frightening. God's wrath, yes, but we have the Son. We have Jesus. We don't have to do something for it. We don't have to do a, come to church every week. We don't, we don't have to sing really loud. We don't have to dance. We don't have to be a preacher. All we have to do is place our faith in him. And then as he wins that spiritual war for us, as he comes the first time, let's not get it twisted again, he's, he's coming back. He's coming back. And the chaos that we see in this earth, the war and the war and the famine and the oppression that we see, the, the things that I see on TV and the news channels that break my heart, those things will come to an end. And there will be a place where we will have perfect peace with Jesus when he returns. Because he will come back and get rid of all of the physical danger. His first was to get us out of spiritual danger. The second will, to get us, will be to deliver us from 
physical danger. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. So here's, you might say, okay, Simeon, that's good stuff, man. God's our defender. God's our deliverer. He's taking me out like all the helicopters coming in. He's taking me out of the one. That's my hope. That's what I'm placing my hope in. One day he will return. We were listening to the song today, me and Shannon, before we came here. Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so come. That's the Christian's heartbeat. That's, that's what the Christian sings day after day. Jesus, just come. Jesus, just come. If we're not saying that, then we're either not believers or we're not watching the news. So we, we, even so, Jesus, come and save this world. Deliver us. That's our hope. That's what gives us courage. But you're saying, okay, Simeon, so, so that's all it is? Like he's taking us, the helicopter, he's taking us out of the danger and just placing us somewhere? He's placing us to, in, in neutral where we have no war and famine? I would say yes, that is, that is the promise. But it's better. It gets even better because God's not only our defender, he's our deliverer, not to neutral, but deliverer to himself, which makes him our delight. He makes them our delight. And this is the third and final point. And, and before we really get into the passage here, let me read one passage. Psalm 16, it's not up there. Psalm 1611, and it's going to help us to understand a very key point, one of my favorite points in my whole life. I call this an anchor passage for me. Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That, I mean, I preached. <laughs> that, that is it right there. If you can get that passage to understand that reality, he says that you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, talking about God, it's David speaking to God. In your presence is not half joy, is not imperfect joy, but full joy, perfect joy. I always told the youth group, I always told them that, 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 that we have these, there, there is a particular design that all humans have. You might say, well, I'm called to be a banker. I'm called to be a businessman. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to go be a pilot. I'm called to do this. Yes, you might have, you do have a unique calling, but you have one thing that you were designed to do, and unfortunately, if we don't get this right, if we don't, if we don't look to Jesus to fulfill this, we're going to look to our jobs. We're going to look to our, uh, our uh, relationships. We're going to look to our careers. If we look to him to fulfill this one thing that we're designed to have, then we're going to live in perfect peace and joy. And that is, we're designed to glorify him and enjoy our God. If we had that posture to, to, to enjoy God, if we had that posture, how great would church be? <laughs> It'd be like, I mean, there's, there's a football game, there's a baseball game, there's work, like all these great pleasures that God gives us. But how great would church be where it's like this, this time, uh, an hour and a half where you get to come and enjoy God? where you get to hear the truths of scripture and it's like I am falling in love with him. That's what I'm here for. It's not about I gotta clean myself up, I gotta get perfect, oh man, they don't know what I did this week, I probably shouldn't go in. No, it's coming to enjoy him. He's not worried about your past because he's taking care of it. He's taking care of it. He wants you to simply enjoy him. Look back to Psalm uh, 46 verse four and five. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. God is in the midst of this city, fullness of joy. She shall not be moved. He's the defender. If he's there, it ain't getting taken out. God will help her when morning dawns. Again, the first thing is right there. He's in the midst of her, meaning if we're there, it's our delight because God's our delight. And where his presence is, there is fullness of joy. 
But, all, but it says in this passage, this, this really tripped me up when I was reading through this, because it almost kind of felt like I'm reading this passage, he's defender, deliverer, and it's like, what is this? Why are we talking about a city? Why are we talking about this? And then not even that, there's, there's a river, there's like water trickling out of the city. Like, what, what is happening? What's up with the water? Well, in the ancient Near East with Israel, it really happened with all different uh, tribes, but there was one place where God dwelt. There was one place where God manifested himself and dwelt among his people to the point that his people could not even go without him. They had to bring this thing, this, this well, you guys know it's a temple, tabernacle, but the tabernacle was moved. The temple was the place where David or Solomon built. It was where God dwelt, the temple. And there is one picture in the Old Testament. This is, this is awesome. There's one picture in the Old Testament that gives us the dwelling place of God and also a river. There's actually two. I'll tell you the one and then I'll tell you the second. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1 through 9. We're not going to read it. I'm going to explain it. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1 through 9. Prior to talking about it, let me tell you what was happening. Ezekiel, he gets, uh, he gets word as he's a priest and he becomes a prophet. He gets word that Jerusalem, the holy city, where the temple was, was conquered by Babylon. We just talked about the wars and oppression that these people had gone through. It was the third oppressor. Babylon was oppressing them, and they conquer and wipe out the city. And Ezekiel's out with the exiles. There were some exiles taken prior to this uh, conquest. And he's sitting with them, and he gets this word, and his heart breaks. The city is destroyed. Not only that, but the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. If you could imagine that, if, if God was, if, if this was Old Testament times, what I'm saying is there was one place you could get God. It's like Bay Ridge Christian Church, the building. And so you would have to come here to get God. If God's your perfect peace, your perfect joy, your de- deliverer and defender, you would have to come here to get him. But all of a sudden another nation comes in and wipes the church out and you're taken away. Wow. It, 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 would, be, it would be breathtaking. It would, be, it would break your heart. I can't have relationship with God. I don't have any defense anymore. I don't have a deliverer. What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my neighbors? What is going to happen? And Ezekiel and the people in Babylon at the time, they start to ask the question, is God done with us? Is God done? I mean, this is too chaotic. This war, this, this is it. Is God done? And God answers the question, to Ezekiel with a hard no, I'm not done with you, but God answers the question with a couple of visions. He gives them some visions. And one vision is a vision of the temple. It's the vision of the temple that God gives him. And it's like the old temple, but there's a few things that are different. And one of the differences is found in Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1 through 9. Ezekiel's in the temple. And God tells him to go outside of the temple. And remember, the temple is where God is. He goes outside of the temple, and all of a sudden, he starts to realize, like, what the heck? There's a little puddle here. There's a puddle in the temple. And he's like, okay. But he starts to walk out. Next thing you know, the puddle like, goes knee, uh, knee deep. It goes all the way up. He's like, my goodness, he's walking in this water. And he continues to walk and walk all the way to the driest part of the ancient Near East, the Arabah. He walks all the way there, and he realizes that this little puddle that was in the temple, it's turned into a full-blown river. It became a river, and it watered the driest part of the land. But not only that, he looks to the right, and he looks to the left, and all of a sudden, he starts to see trees sprouting up. He's like, what is happening? 
So let me, let me interpret what's happening. First off, God is giving him hope. God is saying, look, you've, you've, you've been in distress. You've been in captivity. You've been oppressed. The temple was just wiped out. But there's going to come a time when the Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, this new temple will come. And it will be there. And as we know that Jesus was the temple. But this temple will be there. But not only that, this river and this stream is actually pointing back. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's pointing back to a particular passage in Scripture. And it's the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, that's where God dwelt. That was the very first temple. And in the Garden of Eden, there were four rivers. And the rivers gave life to all the inhabitation outside of the garden and in the garden. And so what's happening is God is saying, I'm going to recreate the Garden of Eden. When the world was perfect, when I walked with man and man worked with me, when I did that and man had perfect joy and perfect delight and there was no struggle and there was no stress and there was no labor that caused pain, there was no death, there was no sickness, there was no COVID. When that happened in the very beginning, God said, I'm putting a garden there and you're going to walk with me. And the water is analogous to God's life, him giving life to those who are in the midst of the city. And you might say, wow, that, that's amazing that Ezekiel, he, th- th- this vision would come and God would come and th- this temple would be recreated and life would be given. But it gets even better because John, the revelator in, in, in Revelation, the very last chapter of the Bible, he picks back up on this imagery. And he says, he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So where, where is this water flowing? It's flowing from the throne of God. Where's the throne of God? The throne of God is in the temple. So I used to, I, 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 don't, know, I, I don't know if you, about you guys, but I used to, yeah, 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 I used to hate it. I used to hate re- reading Revelation. I, I just, as a kid, parents used to be, ah, I didn't like it. And then because I watched the movies The Left Behind. Yeah, that, that'll, give you, that'll give you a heart attack. You watch that, and then you read it. You're like, ah, what's going to happen? There's a dragon coming. There's all this kind of crazy chaos and all this stuff. Oh, used to freak me out. But and then I read the 22nd chapter, and I realized that the whole purpose of all that chaos and war that you see in Revelation, oh, just terrifying stuff, is God is saying, hey, look, yeah, Jesus came, but before he comes, and this is just a reality check here, before he comes, things will get worse. Things are going to get worse. Man, the wars that we see, man, Simeon, this is terrible. Tell me it gets better. Well, it's going to get worse first. That's the point of Revelation. It's going to get worse, but it pales in comparison to how good it's going to get. It's going to get so good. Now, you're not going to get a million dollars after the wars when Jesus comes back. You, you, some think you might get your own planet. I don't know, maybe. May, I, you're, it's, 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 you're not going to get your own uh, car. You're not going to get a house. All that you may, but what makes it great is God will be there, and he will be your delight. So when the psalmist is saying that, that there is a, there's a city of God, as he's my deliverer, there's a city of God, and there's water in, in the midst of her, what he's saying is he's picking up on these two ideas of the Garden of Eden and this temple in Ezekiel chapter 47, and he's saying, that's our hope. That's our hope. That's our delight, is, is God will be in the midst of her. God is coming for you. So when we're struggling now and we're, we're in pain now, I, I just want you to hold on. Hold on because there is a hope. There is a life that is to come. It's called eternity, and it gets much better. God will be your delight. But Simeon, I'm living for, for 80, 90 years, and man, what is that? how is that going to help me now? Look, look, 80, 90 years is a vapor in the wind compared to eternity. 
That what we do here now will, will help prepare us for how we will live then in God's presence. We got to get our, our, our focus back. We got to get our focus back on him and what is to come. That's, that, that's the hope we walk around with. And not only that, but that's what, that's what compels us to share the gospel to other people. That's what compels us. Again, I, I look out and I see, okay, yeah, there's wars, there's famine, there's, there's, uh, 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 there's, there's uh, philosophical threats that we go through in this country. There are, there's economical threats. There are ideologies that are pending that are just like, my gosh, is this ever going to end? This is terrifying. But I look at that, and that isn't even anything when I look at a lost person and see, man, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. So, so, so if everything gets perfect and everything is right in the earth and it goes back to, it's just bliss. Without Jesus, it's terrible. So we've got to get to a place where we get our focus back, eternally focused, we're focused on this coming of the Messiah, the second coming where this city will be our destination. Simeon, that's, that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> I don't know if I just complimented myself. That's kind of weird. But, uh, but Simeon, okay, that's, that's great. Man, defense, deliverer, wow. Wow, that's amazing. We get to be there one day. That's right. But it gets a little better. <laughs> it gets a little better. Let's, let's end here. Back in verse 1, watch this. God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. Back to verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And again, verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. What's the point here? What's the point? Oh, man, this is good. <sighs> that he's our delight in this future destination that we're headed to called heaven. But he's present now. He's present now. He's present now. See me, see me as a Christian, so I'm, I, man, okay, I just got to struggle through this life. No joy, pick up my cross. Life's going to suck, but I'll, I'll it. oh, man, this will be good later. Yes, it'll be good later. But he's present now. Like, he's present now. So, so the things of this world, the temporal things that bring us pleasure, and again, Ecclesiastes helps us understand this. Good stuff. But it doesn't compare to the fact that he's present now. He's your delight, yes, to come, but he is your delight now. But again, he's your delight, and it's most recognized in trouble. It's most recognized in trouble. So, so when I said in the very beginning that my hope and my, my prayer today is that when you go through things that cause anxiety, when you go through things that bring worry, that it should trigger, not anxiety, but it should trigger, he's present. He's here now. He's with me. If I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, he has placed his spirit in you. And the Bible tells us that he, or that you, now are the temple of God. You are the temple of God, meaning God's presence is with you no matter where you go. You don't have to come to a building. You don't have to go to a church. It's not a physical place on earth. It's in the people of God. That's where his presence is. And when we're in trouble and we're struggling and life is, is challenging, it should remind us he's present now. If I don't have him in me, if I've not placed my faith in him, Today is the day. Today is the day that you can walk away tomorrow and say, he's present now. 
I mean, is, is the, wh- why do I not always, why do I not feel his presence? Why do I not have delight? This is what, this is what the teaching is all about. Verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. Hmm. Here's the result. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Stillness is the key to recognizing God's presence in the midst of chaos. Stillness is the key to recognizing God's presence in the midst of chaos. (sighs) We're going to be delivered. But in the meantime, (laughs) that deliverer is coming to us now. And his presence is everything we need. It's joy, it's peace, it's happiness. Here's the, I always, you know, at, at least at some point in the sermon, I like to give a cute little little rhyme or whatever so you might be able to remember this. But I said that stillness, it yields realness. Stillness, it yields, it produces realness. I remember when I was in college, I, 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 was, I was a believer for four years. I gave my life to Christ my freshman year. I came back five years. But for four years, I was a believer, but I struggled. We all do, don't we? I struggled. Ups and downs. Ups and downs. And I remember my fifth year, I was, oh, my bad, it was the fourth year going into the fifth year, the the spring in the fourth year. And I remember sitting there, we were at a party, oh, I was at my house and there was a party and then all the, the people left my house and it was just me and my roommate left. And I remember, it was so random, I just, boom, busted out crying, just tears, just flowing from my face. And my roommate's like, and especially you're in college, like that ain't cool. My roommate was like, bro, like, like what, what the heck is going on? And I'm like, I don't know. All I could say was, aren't we Christians? I was like, we're Christians. And he was like, yeah, that, like, yeah, where we go to a Christian school. Yeah, we're definitely Christians. And I'm like, but then why don't we live like it? Why don't, why don't we live like we're Christians? And he got exactly what I was saying. And he just said, if I'm honest, Simeon, because God's not real to me. Like, if I'm just honest about it. Like, we're Christians. We put our faith in him, but he's just, he's not real to me. And I remember it. I remember it. Spring year, uh, fourth year, going into the summer, I remember saying, that's it then. That's it. God has got to be real to me. He's got to be real to me. And I remember making a decision. I called my brother the next day, and I said, I'm moving to Memphis that summer. Because I had to get around some real believers, some strong people. And I got there, and I moved to Memphis that summer. And I remember sitting down, one of the very first things we did, 5 o'clock in the morning at B.J. Thompson's table. There's about four of us there. And he had this, this, this Bible study that he had that I had been hearing about. And I remember walking in, and this dude was, I mean, he was just a stud. You know, he would, he would sit in the chair, and you're like, oh, you hear about this guy. So you're like, oh, shoot, I, maybe I'll go in and meet him. Hey, how you doing? But I walk into his, in his house. Lights were down. There was little candles, a little ambiance. But um, I walk in, get my coffee, and I go sit down, and I'm waiting for everybody to talk, but they're all just sitting in silence. And BJ's head, I never even saw his face, was down on the table. 
And we sat there for like 10 minutes. And I, everyone was much older than me. I'm like 20-something at the time, early 20s. And I'm just sitting there like, like when are we going to talk? Are we going to speak? Like, this is, this is kind of weird, but also awesome at the same time. And I'm just sitting there. And then eventually he gets up, and then we have Bible study. And, and that was the most powerful moment of my life because that's when I started to get called into ministry. Because the word of God became so real to me. It became so, it, it opened my eyes. And as I reflected on this passage and I started thinking through stillness, that's why I said stillness yields realness. Because God became real to me when I learned to quiet my soul. When I learned to be still. So Simeon, how then do we apply this? Well, it's very very simple, but I, 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 if, I don't know if you guys have ever read Richard Foster's Celebration of Disciplines. Fantastic book, Richard Foster's Celebration of Disciplines. I would recommend it. But this is more, this comes from the chapter on solitude. Because as I reflected on stillness, in this passage specifically, the context, that stillness is really about laying down your weapons. <laughs> Understanding you can't fight for yourself. Let him be your defender. Let him be your deliverer. Let him be your delight. You can't please yourself. You can't fight for yourself. You can't deliver yourself. God is the one that does that. That's what it means to be still. Calm it down. Relax and understand he's the one that will fight for you. But stillness in practice looks like solitude. Stillness in practice looks like solitude. This is finding a quiet place. <laughs> Good luck, by the way. <laughs> in this world, it's tough. Finding a quiet place to quiet your soul before God. It is the most, and we did this with the youth, and I remember we even spread out and we started practicing just solitude before we would do questions. It is the most powerful practice to sit in silence in a world of noise. And let me say this, this silence, or this, this solitude, excuse me, this solitude, it's not about like the world would say, oh, this is good. Like if you're, if, you, if you're not a believer, you might have heard stuff like this, solitude, meditation. You'd say, this is good stuff, Simeon. I mean, yeah, sit in solitude. I like church. But this is a little different than how the world does it because the world says, we're going to go sit in solitude and we're going to meditate and, and figure out my inner self. I'm going to go deep inside and I'm going to figure out who I am. I'm going to listen to my thoughts and get real in tune with my thoughts. This is not that. Solitude is all about being quiet and letting God fill you up and letting his word speak to you. I would recommend finding a quiet place. Here's the second thing, that when you're in solitude, be silent. Be silent. Be silent. Silence in involves two things. Not speaking. <laughs> For me, that's really hard. My wife would, has a quiet amen right now. Not speaking, but I love this one actively listening to God, actively listening to God. This is, this is what this looks like, especially in the context of this sermon. Actively listening says, what is chaotic in my life? What, 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 what's stressing me out? And, and, and if you're like me, you tend to be, I, I, I'm a little, like I'm not aware of stress sometimes. Like I don't, you know, I don't do the stress stuff. Like I'm pretty good with it. I'm, I'm fine. Give me my favorite YouTube channel and I'm, I'm chilling. But, Everybody deals with stress. Everybody has things that creep up on them. Coworker, boss, whatever it might be, career, marriage, whatever. So we've got to know those things and let God fill us with, I am your defender, I am your deliverer, and I am your delight. Find Jesus in the word of God. And then the final thing is just 
Just schedule it. Schedule it. Schedule it. Find that time. Uh, develop this quiet place. Whether it's a, a corner in your room, a, ch- a special chair that you have in the basement, a room that, that, that's before the, before the kids wake up, a room that you can get away to, a park, a spot in the park. I used to do this at work. I would just go drive away from work and sit in my car and sit in my car for 30 minutes on my break and just try and be quiet because it's very difficult for me. A storage closet, a retreat center, whatever. Figure out when you're going to practice solitude so that you can be still and know that he is God. Let's, uh, let's go to the table. If you have your uh, packets, we can open those up. called this the table of delight because God is our delight. God is our delight and in the presence in his presence there is fullness of joy. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was broke betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Prepare the bread now. Father, bread has been given to nourish our bodies so that we are built up to take on life's challenges. Today, we recognize Christ as our defense, our strength, who is a present help in this chaotic age, take and eat. Jesus, we stand in all of your deliverance. Today, we are keenly aware that you have transferred us from darkness into your marvelous light. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us today, that we might remember you are the God whom we delight in, that as the storms of life assail us, we will recall your grace, your mercy, and your truth. Cause us to walk in obedience to you whereby our lives are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We ask you to shower us in your love so that we might taste and see that you are good. Amen. Now, church, uh, this is a benediction from Ephesians. Chapter 3, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go today, church, knowing that you are blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.